Well, let me invite you to remain standing out of gladness, of hearing of Christ through His Word, and turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 11 is where we will be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, it's always good to have one open in front of you as we study God's Word together, so we would warmly invite you to grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you and turn to page 800. And 70. If you are new with us today here at Redeemer, for the last eight months we've been purposefully and patiently walking through the longest book in the New Testament, uh, this Gospel of Luke. And today we come to the end of chapter 11, which means we are almost halfway through the book in our study so far as this morning we want to look at verses 37 through 54 of Luke chapter 11. And as we will just shortly read the text, you ought to know that this is one of those hard sayings from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of the texts that we often find in the Gospels in which Jesus means to tread on our toes spiritually. But we hope that by the Spirit, He'll do it tenderly for us as well today. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through His Word. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked Him to dine with Him. And so Jesus went in and reclined at table. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold... Everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees. You tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. And one of the teachers answered, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And Jesus said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all those prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. And as Jesus went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him, to catch him in something he might say. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for your kindness that you love us enough to even confront us sternly and forcefully through your word. As we come to a passage this morning 
that I trust we will see together is so applicable to our lives. Give us repentance that we need. To turn from our self-righteousness, to turn from our own hypocrisy unto true holiness and humility in Jesus Christ. And so send the Spirit to open our eyes, the truth of your word, to work within us gladness to receive it, love to follow it, an eagerness to trust in it. Send the Spirit to help me preach as I ought boldly and clearly, as a dying man unto dying people, unsure to ever preach again. Father, speak to us tenderly and kindly in this word, for this might be the last one you do give to us. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Charles Wesley is a name some of you might know. He might be the greatest hymn writer in church history. He's surely the most prolific one, having written in his lifetime 8,989 hymns, many of which we actually sing and are in our Trinity hymnal. Some of you know them, O four thousand tongues to sing. And can it be that I should gain? Even every season we tend to sing Wesley hymns in Christmas. We sing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. On Easter we often sing, Christ the Lord is risen today. And one of his lesser known hymns is titled, Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild. And it's a song that extols, truthfully, God's loving care for his children. His care for them in Jesus Christ. And if you just took the title of that hymn, Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild, I dare say that for many Christians today, that is the almost exclusive understanding that they have of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Lord of love. He's the man of mercy. He's the king of kindness and the God of grace, which is true, isn't it? But if you were to paint a picture of Christ's character with only those colors, What you would soon find out on a full reading of Scripture is that there are other textures that should be in that portrait according to God's Word, especially according to the Gospels of Jesus Christ. For He is not only those things that we just mentioned, the Lord of love, man of mercy. He is also the judge of justice, the ruler of righteousness, the warrior of wrath. And it's truth that we even see this morning as Jesus is going to speak judgment upon religious leaders. One preacher describes the passage as following, Jesus' words in this passage fly from his lips like claps of thunder and spears of lightning. Out of his mouth on this occasion came the most fearful and dreadful statements that Jesus uttered on earth. And you can summarize our text today with a simple three-word sentence. Jesus opposes hypocrisy. Now you may have noticed in our reading of the text, the word hypocrites doesn't show up. Hypocrisy doesn't show up. But just skip down to verse 1 of chapter 12. What Lord willing we will see next week. Where Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. So what is their central problem? Which is hypocrisy. And if you later on today read over in Matthew chapter 23, the parallel text to this passage in Luke, you'll see Jesus utter the woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees and normally he adds the addendum Woe to you hypocrites. And so this morning we want to give our attention to the nature of Jesus' opposition of hypocrisy. So kids, I want you to think with me for a second. What is hypocrisy? Do you know what it means to be a hypocrite? Uh, The original word was actually used of actors. It was used to talk about people who are pretending to be someone they're not. Now those of you that are older students know what it means. It's when your behavior doesn't match your beliefs, when your character doesn't conform to your 
convictions. And we want to give special attention even this morning as church members to this text because some of you know this, maybe even have said such things before, that one of the most common reasons non-Christians don't want to come into a Christian church is because the Christian church is full of hypocrisy. To meet a Christian is just to meet yet another hypocrite. And Jesus has very hard words to speak about the nature of hypocrisy as magnified and manifested in the Pharisees and the lawyers. And so you may have also noted as I was reading the text, there are three woes that he gives to the Pharisees, and there are three woes that he gives to the lawyers. And so I just want to walk through the text under Jesus judges hypocritical religion, the woes to the Pharisees. And then secondly, Jesus judges hypocritical teaching, the woes to the lawyers. So if you weren't with us last week, we looked at verses 14 through 36, which was Likely, one morning, maybe afternoon, but one portion of a day in Jesus' ministry. And it all began when he cast out a mute demon. And as a result of this exorcism, Jesus has to subsequently deal with two lines of conflict we looked at last Sunday. First, he had to deal with the denunciation of the religious leaders that Jesus was nothing more than a demon-inspired exorcist. And he dealt with that effectively. Then he had to deal with, secondly, the crowd's demand for yet another sign from heaven that Jesus be able to authenticate his identity. And once he dealt with that, we got to verse 33 and 36 in Luke chapter 11, where Jesus gave some parable or parabolic teaching on light and darkness. And what you need to know about that section, which is right before where we pick up today, is he was saying to these crowds and these religious leaders that some of you think you're in the light, when in fact you are actually full of darkness. Even members of the kingdom of darkness. So on the heels of that come judgment. Comes judgment upon Pharisees, lawyers who think they own the light, have a marketplace on the light of truth when in fact they're going to be shown this morning to be nothing more than in fact full of darkness in themselves. So first we want to see Jesus judges hypocritical religion. If you notice verse 37, as Jesus is discoursing about light and darkness, one Pharisee comes up to him and asks him to have a meal at his house. So if you don't know anything about the Pharisees, they were a very influential, yet somewhat small, uh, group in Jewish culture at the time. Uh, Their name literally means the separated ones. It comes from the Hebrew word separate, which is peresh. And their whole endeavor of life was to live separate from the world in exclusive holiness and righteousness. And so they devoted themselves to all these extra-biblical commands that would separate them from the rest of the culture and community in which they lived. And one of those extra-biblical commands dealt with washing your hands before eating. And it's something that Jesus doesn't do. Look at verse 38. The Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. More literally, the text says the Pharisee was struck out of his mind before he baptized his hands. And they had this really elaborate and careful ritual before eating meals where they would pour water over each hand. And in so pouring the water, it would cleanse them from any sort of defilement they may have contracted during the day's endeavors and deeds. And Jesus has no interest in washing his hands. He's going to dive into the food right away, and it upsets the notion of this Pharisee in whose house he is visiting. And maybe you've read enough of the Gospels to know that Jesus delights to disrupt man-made traditions, doesn't he? And I dare say that even for some of us in this morning, he wants to do just that, to disrupt your devotion to a man-made tradition. 
to a commandment of men so that you might be free to walk in the gospel of Jesus Christ alone. So notice what Jesus says in verse 39 through 40 as he confronts this trouble in the Pharisee's heart. The Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? So if you want to think of the Pharisees in a general sense, but it is quite true, they were devoted to external religion at the expense of internal devotion. And Jesus is confronting that way of living by saying, you think that you are the guardians of true holiness, the exemplars of real godliness, and yet you are nothing less than fanatics of foolishness. Because you devote yourself to the things that you have created, when in reality your heart is full of greed and wickedness. So what comes then in verse 41 is almost like a banner statement for what is getting ready to follow in the six woes. Because notice what Jesus says in verse 41. The answer to this problem of the Pharisees is, Give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Now, in my ESV translation, the meaning of this verse, even the translation can feel ambiguous and mysterious in certain ways. It has led many commentators to wonder exactly what Jesus is after at this point. But here's how I want you to think about it as the woes are getting ready to come. What he is saying in verse 41 is that true piety, which the Old Testament summarizes as caring for the poor and giving alms, doing justice, okay, true godliness comes from within from a heart that is given to God through Jesus Christ. And when it is your heart that is devoted to Christ, your outside will be holy, will be clean, will be set apart. So he's reversing, he's upending the typical pharisaical pattern of a focus on the external at the expense of the internal. What Jesus is saying is you want to realize that internal holiness comes from regeneration by the Spirit. So you might be in here uh, this morning and and you're not a Christian, what you need to know about the Christian faith, which is unique in many world religions that are around our earth, is that it says that what you do, works of righteousness, works of mercy, no amount of good that you do with your hands can earn you God's favor. What you need is a new heart, the Bible says, a pouring out of the Spirit to take your heart of stone and make it into a heart of flesh that you now from the inside, from the being of your soul might be renewed after Jesus Christ in order to obey him as you ought, to honor him, to glorify him. So he wants to take your eyes off your external actions and place it on who you are in the inner man. And he does so by uttering three woes on the Pharisees first. Now I grew up in a home that loved Robin Hood reading the story in its unabridged and abridged uh, versions, watching Disney movies or any other movies that Robin Hood seemed to inspire. And if you've ever read the story or seen any of these movies, you know that almost inevitably the story comes to this point where Robin Hood is in an archery competition against his arch enemy, which was originally Gilbert White. And Gilbert takes his arrow, he lets it fly, and of course he strikes the bullseye. So up steps Robin Hood, and what does he do? And he takes his arrow and sets it in the bow, and then he lets fly, and then it splits his enemy's arrow right down the middle. 
And what we're getting ready to get in Jesus' judgment of these religious people are six truth-tipped arrows that just each one is further driving at the error of these two groups of people. And we're meant to feel them ourselves this morning. So look at woe number one as Jesus tells us that he opposes those who leave behind the great commandments. Look at verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So the Pharisees, part of their system of righteousness was a, a very scrupulous devotion to tithing, giving a tenth of their possessions to the Lord. So scrupulous, in fact, that kids, it would be equivalent to you going home today, opening up your pantry, looking at your mom's spice rack, and pulling out the salt, pulling out the pepper, pulling out the paprika, pulling out the cayenne pepper, pulling out the cinnamon, and whatever else you could find on that rack, and counting out and, and scraping out a tenth of all of those spices, a tenth of all of those herbs, that you might tie them back to the Lord. And Jesus is saying, you Pharisees are doing all of this. You're so consumed with the little things of the law that you've forgotten the big things. The greatest things of love. Love for God. Love for your neighbor. It's a warning, isn't it, even against majoring on the minors? So often in churches, how true it is that we can so focus on secondary matters that we forget the first matters of importance altogether. A loving Jesus Christ and leading others to Him with kindness and conviction. And even notice, if you're a church member in here today and wanting to follow Christ faithfully, that Christ, of course, doesn't overthrow the principle of the tithe, does he? He says, you should have done it. But just understand its proper place in holiness. He opposes those who leave behind the great commandments. And in verse 43 of the next woe, we see that Jesus opposes those who love to be noticed. Look at what he says. Woe to you Pharisees. For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. For many of the Pharisees, their system of piety was little more than a popularity contest. When they went to someone's house, they wanted the seat of prominence, prestige, and power. When they entered into the ancient equivalents of a grocery store or a mall, they wanted to be greeted with great flowery formality. Even one of their ancient texts says, this is the kind of greeting that you should give to a Pharisee, to a rabbi. When you see him, this was of a particular Rabbi Talisar. Ah, Rabbi Talisar, glorious doctor of the Torah, repository of the wisdom of Solomon, son of Abraham, friend of righteousness, defender of Israel's faith, we greet thee. So understand what they're doing. They are attributing, desiring for themselves praise that belongs to God alone. Desiring to be noticed in every situation in which they find themselves. And earlier this week, I was thinking of a time in which I had a meal with Dr. Lane Tipton, who's systematics or systematic theology professor at Westminster Seminary up in Philadelphia. And as, as you're right to do, I think, and prone to do when you're around a seminary professor, for the first few minutes, I was referring to him as Dr. Tipton. And after about the fourth or fifth time that I said it, he interrupted me and said, Jordan, please, please just call me Lane, because I'm just a simple servant of the church. It's you pastors that are doing the real work, the hard work of ministry. So please just refer to me as Lane. And I've always thought that to be quite moving and even quite convicting as recently I've been walking in academic circles when seminary professors and academicians and teachers, they love to have titles to their name. 
when Jesus says he opposes those who love to be noticed. And the third woe, the final woe he gives to the Pharisees is that he opposes those who lead others into sin. Look at verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. And if you understood the fullness of Pharisaical practice at this time, you would understand that Jesus is in some ways just landed on the most sensitive spot for Pharisaical piety with this final woe towards them. Because what he has said is you are spiritually dead. And they think they're the exact opposite. Not only are you spiritually dead, you contaminate everyone who comes in contact with you. Because the Old Testament law, particularly in the book of Numbers, said that if you were to walk over an unmarked grave, so it's a place of death, you'd be ceremonially unclean for seven days. So the Pharisees had created a law where you had to whitewash tombs so that you could see where the graves would be lest you walk across it unknowingly and become unclean. And Jesus has just said, you are unmarked graves. When people come in contact with you, what they get is the poison of self-righteousness. So think, parents, about the kind of example that you are placing before your children. Maybe you are a manager or a boss at your workplace. The example that you are placing before your employees is it one that leads them to the purity of Jesus Christ and His righteousness alone. Or that poison of hypocrisy and self-righteousness that so often afflicts religious people. Jesus judges hypocritical religion. Jesus also judges hypocritical teaching in the remainder of the text. One of the most famous boxers in the world in around 1950 was Jake LaMotta. He had some legendary fights with Sugar Ray Leonard, which became the inspiration for a well-known movie, Raging Bull. And when Jake LaMotta died last year, the president of the Boxing Hall of Fame said he was the most relentless fighter in boxing history. He just kept coming. And as this meal continues at the Pharisee's house, Jesus' woes and judgment just keeps on coming. Because again, notice what happens in verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Now you need to know who the lawyers were at this time. If you skip down to verse 53, we're told by Luke, the scribes and the Pharisees. So a lawyer was a scribe. A scribe was a lawyer. They're not how we tend to think of lawyers today in the 21st century. Lawyers were essentially experts in the Old Testament law. They were the leaders that had a Ph.D. in the Old Testament law. But specifically, they were experts in the oral tradition that grew up and surrounded, in some ways, choked the Old Testament law with all these extra-biblical commands and all these extra-biblical traditions. You could even, in some ways, I think most accurately liken them to, in our time, seminary professors. That was their role. Not that all seminary professors today are hypocrites, but it's the same kind of function. Just as I think you could liken Pharisees to modern-day fundamentalists. Be ye separate was the watchword in the 20th century for fundamentalists. That's what it was for Pharisees. And of course, this man is essentially saying in more modern terms, Jesus, you hurt our feelings too. But look at what Jesus says in verse 46. Woe to you lawyers also. There's enough guilt to go around at this dinner party. They're not going to get away from this Lord of true righteousness. So he's got three woes for them too. And the first one shows us that Jesus opposes those who burden people with the law and don't help them. Notice 
As verse 46 continues, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Part of the lawyer's job was to interpret the Old Testament law in such a way, comment on it, study it, teach it, that it would help devoted Jews understand how they could actually faithfully keep God's law. But in the course of their study, they had added so many do's and don'ts to the Old Testament law that Jesus says, instead of lightening the load, you've made it heavier for my people. Uh, the word here for burdens was normally used of ship's cargo. This, this weighty burden you have cast upon the people's souls. And in many ways, quite literally, they would have been standing back with their arms crossed, maybe occasionally pointing fingers at some devout Jew who's struggling under their demands, but never lifting a finger. To, to help one that was struggling in their conscience before God. And of course, what we find out in the New Testament and the New Covenant Church is that Christians are to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6 tells us. That as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're to help one another in our pursuit of righteousness and godliness in Jesus Christ. And so maybe recently someone in your neighborhood has moved in, it's been a moving truck, or maybe a big old U-Haul has showed up and extended family and friends and maybe even church members arrived and they have begun to unload that cargo. And true godliness, true piety is found in not just pointing fingers at what someone is doing wrong. It's a lifting a helping hand through the power of the Spirit to serve them, to bear the burden that they might walk in greater conformity to Christ. And so he opposes those who burden people with the law, yet never help them. Next, in the longest woe of the passage, verse 47 through 51, Jesus opposes those who bury the prophets but don't listen to their message. Look at what he says. Woe to you, in verse 47. For you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them. And you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel. Kids, do you know where Abel was slain in the Bible? It's the book of Genesis, the first book in the Hebrew Bible. It says, from the blood of Abel, verse 51, to the blood of Zechariah, which shows up in the book of Second Chronicles, which is the last book in the Hebrew Bible. From beginning to end, Jesus is saying, you have been spilling the blood of my servants, and a reckoning is coming Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, in the end of verse 51, I tell you, it will be required of you. So what's he saying? What's the deal with tombs? Well, the lawyers had built these ornate, in some ways beautiful tombs, over the graves of prophets. And they were celebrating their devotion to God because they had built these monuments for the prophets of old that have come back. And Jesus is saying in an ironic way, you building a tomb over the prophet is your tacit approval of what your fathers did in murdering them. What you should have done is not built the tomb, not built the gravestone, but fallen on your knees in repentance because that was the message for which these prophets were killed. And here you are just celebrating your external righteousness and building a piece of stone. And I don't think there is even an exact correlation to our times on, on this woe. But there is truth even in our own Presbyterian tradition that we can often celebrate the legacies of men and women of old, saints, preachers, theologians, teachers of centuries gone by. And in some ways pat ourselves on the back that we've read that book. 
that we've read that theological tone, that we're familiar with that man or woman's history. Yet, most of our life tends to just reject the gospel they preached, the holiness they pursued. And the final woe upon the lawyers, notice verse 52, tells us that Jesus opposes those who block the way of salvation without entering it. And again, he's, he's in some ways landing on the most sensitive part of a lawyer's conscience at this time. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. You hindered those who were entering. So lawyers thought that in their knowledge of the law and the laws of the Scriptures, they were the ones that held the key to righteousness. Not just that, they were the ones that could open the door unto salvation. And what Jesus has said is instead of turning the key and unlocking the door, you've turned it the other way and slammed the deadbolt shut, and in fact, you yourselves have never even entered in. You who proclaim salvation aren't even saved, is what he is saying. Woe to you. So students, some of you, even as we prayed earlier in the service, will soon leave our midst. Some of you are growing up in a church that cherishes Jesus Christ, that places in your hand every Lord's day the key of salvation in Christ Jesus. And what will you do with it? Will you use it to enter in yourself and also open the door for others? Or is your life and teaching, your doctrine and devotion going to be one that actually ultimately turns the key and slams the deadbolt shut in your own hypocrisy? Jesus opposes the hypocritical religion of the Pharisees. So three woes of judgment. He opposes the hypocritical teaching of the lawyers. So three woes of judgment. Now many of you know we have six little kids at home. And our house has one room upstairs. And our four oldest boys all sleep in that room. It's like the boys' bunkhouse. And so oftentimes, you know, they're going throughout the day, upstairs and downstairs to get things out of the rooms, change clothes, to go to bed, so on and so forth, get toys. And underneath that staircase is my closet, where our sixth child, eight-month-old Boston, sleeps. That's his bedroom currently right now. And as I'm sure many of you might know from personal experience, four little kids going up and down stairs throughout the day comes with it the expectation of silence that you ought to assume from a herd of baby elephants, <laughs> just loud, up and down, all day long, that often is what? Waking up the baby. And in a spiritual sense, what Jesus is doing for the Pharisees and the lawyers and even us this morning is storming on our self-righteousness in order to wake us up. But do you see the Pharisees don't want to wake up? The scribes don't want to wake up. Look at verse 53 and 54. As he went away from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Now, kids, students, pay attention to the verbs. You see the volley of verbs you get in those two verses? What are, what are these religious leaders doing now in light of Jesus' woeful pronouncements on them? He's pressing, or they're pressing in on him, provoking him, lying in wait to catch him, and they're, of course, trying to catch him. And all these words are hunting terms. So instead of repenting, what are they doing? Hunting. Hypocrites tend to hunt out people who are truly devoted to Christ. Hypocrites tend to hunt, and in so hunting, they harm others and even hurt others. What should have been a judgment that led them to repentance 
it's only going to lead them now to greater condemnation for the rejection of Christ's words. And lest it fall upon us in the same way, as we begin to close, I want to just meditate on a few brief things that we ought to see from this passage, simple implications for our life of today, the first of which is we want to see that Jesus warns against the danger of self-righteousness. Now, that is another way you could summarize the entire text. Jesus warns against the danger of self-righteousness. Uh, these pharisaical leaders, these scribal teachers were all full of hypocritical religion and teaching and upon them Jesus says is coming condemnation and greater judgment for what they have overthrown in their unrepentance and as though we walk through these six woes we don't always have an exact correlation as I said earlier to a modern day context we dare not think that the temptation to hypocrisy is not rampant among our our churches even today even our own hearts sitting in here this morning consider, consider a common or a few common hypocrisies that so often afflict the church today. You proclaim to love the Word of God, yet you haven't read it in the last week outside of a Sunday, maybe even haven't read it in the last month. Just this week, uh, a very extended study came out and said only 11% of professing Christians have ever read all 66 books of the Bible. You proclaim the public value, or you proclaim publicly the value of purity, yet all the while you lock yourselves away in a hidden room to satisfy desires of pornography. You proclaim that the church should be giving more money away to missions, because 15% of money to missions isn't enough, while you struggle to even give 5% away to the church. You say that we should be doing more in outreach and evangelism, Yet you can't recall the last time you shared Christ personally with someone who doesn't know him. I'm sure we could go on down the line and think of many more that we struggle with. One this week for me. You tell your kids to be patient and self-controlled. Yet your parenting so often is the exact opposite. He warns us against the danger, the threat, the prevalency of self-righteousness and hypocrisy. These are truth-tipped arrows that he means to strike our heart by the Spirit this morning. Secondly, he exhorts leaders to watch over their souls. Because who is he originally addressing in this passage? Religious leaders. Some of you serve here on session, diaconate at the church. Some of you are seminary students looking forward to pastoral ministry. Many of you serve in various places of ministerial service and leadership here in the church. And what kind of model? are you promoting with your doctrine and devotion? Isn't it true that so, so few years, if they ever go by without hearing of yet another prominent, famous religious leader fall from the ministry because of a prolonged pattern of hypocrisy in his or her own life? We dare not think that we are immune to such challenges. Even in the words of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, to leaders, keep a close watch on your life and your teaching. In so doing, and even hear the correlation to verse 52 of our text, in so doing, you will save yourself and your hearers. Are you watching over your life and doctrine? Are you hearing the warning of hypocrisy? But we do want to end, don't we? We ought to want to end on what is the true gospel note of this passage, that Jesus welcomes us to rest on his righteousness alone. 
For what will cause you to stand before Christ at the last day, the final judgment, and not fall into the guilt and condemnation that your sins deserve? Not on anything you have done, not on anything you are doing, and not on anything you will do, but only by clinging to Christ alone by faith and repentance will you be able to stand. Because, friend, if you're in here today and you're not a Christian, understand this great gospel news, that if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, you will be washed clean with forgiveness by His blood. And not just that, you will be declared righteous in Him because His righteousness is credited, the Bible says, imputed to you that you might stand before God in robes of spotless white before Him. Jesus opposes hypocritical religion, yet at the same time welcomes us to renew our faith in His righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. I spend a few hours early every Sunday morning uh, out in our garage. For whatever reason, it just has been the garage over the last few years. And reading through the text that soon to be preached, looking over the sermon manuscript, uh, spending time in prayer. And in recent weeks, somehow uh, a group of crickets have migrated into the garage at my house. And after about two hours this morning of thinking through this passage, a cricket underneath the freezer in there just started chirping and just kept going. And soon it disrupted my devotion, <laughs> distracted me from what I was in there to do. So I cranked up the blower <laughs> at 6 o'clock in the morning around then. And Emily wonders what's going on in the garage as I'm trying to blow out this cricket from, from underneath the freezer in order that I might get back to what God has called me to do. And I do hope that in some ways the Spirit would move among us powerfully to blow away the hypocrisy that is disrupting our life in Christ, that distracts us from true devotion to His righteousness alone. His word alone, His kindness towards us alone. So as I said earlier, He means to trample on toes this morning, but He does it because He loves you and wants you to turn away from your dead works and cling to His perfect work alone that you might know Him. Let us pray together. Father, we pray that you would freshly convict us of the ways in which we are sinning against you and the ways in which we are pursuing knowingly or even unknowingly patterns of hypocrisy and help us to cling to Christ alone this morning. Do renew our faith in your Son's work on our behalf. Help us to cast off our trust in our own works that we may say it is not by what our hands have done but only because of what Christ has done that we might know him and live with you for all eternity. And we do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.